Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. listening to me, Liz Earle, and on today's wellness show, I am delighted to be joined by a fellow well-being foodie, Dale Pinnock, otherwise known as the medicinal chef, who is the absolute master of taking our health and well-being into our own hands to feel fabulous through the foods we eat right up our streets, my dear listeners. Am I right? So welcome, Dale. Thank you for having me. Great to have you Looking here. Looking forward to this for ages. Well, that's a great thrill. And, you know, we are definitely talking the same language. Um, why the medicinal chef? How did that come about? Because that's quite unique, isn't it, really? It is. I mean, it's a deliberately provocative title as well. But I just want people to think differently about food, that it's more than just fuel. It has the capacity to drastically influence our health. And we can actually engage in that process. So that's where it came from. And you are super well qualified, aren't you? I mean, you are a real boffin in this area. I've, I've been doing this for a while, actually, yeah. But not yeah, only I've, that, it's not about yeah. longevity. It's you have yeah, degrees so in my, various things. My first degree was human nutrition. Uh, second degree was herbal medicine. Not that I necessarily wanted to be a herbalist, but I was getting really fascinated with plant biochemistry and how that interact, interacts with our physiology. And my postgrad was nutritional medicine at the University of Surrey. So you are very much evidence-based, yeah. not into fads. Not into fads at all. And, you know, the same ones kind of rear their heads year after year and they come and they go. But um, the real evidence base is growing at an amazing rate. So we've we've got such a strong idea of what good diets look like now. Mm. So, OK, let's let's come on to that then. So a good diet. What does a good diet look like? <laughs> well, you know what? Let's, you know, backtrack with that a little bit. If you look at all of the diets and a lot of the fad things in particular or strange dietary practices, whether it's becoming a raw food, it's whether it's a macrobiotic diet, an Ayurvedic diet, whatever, they're often drastically different, but they all deliver these incredibly transformative results. You see the results that people have had on them, Mm. and it's quite fascinating. And it leaves people confused, like, okay, well, which one of these is telling the truth? Which Mm. one is actually right? But there's one thing that they all share. Mm. they're cutting out the nonsense that's making us sick in the first place so that's the place to start it's like getting an understanding of the things that actually negatively impact our health and get them out of the way and then fill in the blanks with more of the stuff that's actually going to do us some favors because i've just come back from some filming um looking at blue zones Mm -hmm. which is where people have been noted for living much much longer than usual and there are lots of different factors. A lot of people are drinking red wine. They're using olive oil in their cooking. They're eating lots of fish. They're eating lots of herbs. There's lots of different things going on. But the one common thing that does unite them, exactly to your point there, is nothing out of a packet. Yeah. Nothing processed. It is all basically what you get from the ground or from the land mm. is what you eat. It's not messed about with. I've heard a few good good phrases that kind of sum it up quite nicely. One is, if it ran, swam, grew or flew, then eat it. Anything else to leave behind. Or the other <laughs> is, real food doesn't contain ingredients. Real food is ingredients. I like which that. Is quite, which is kind of nice. No added ingredients. Yeah, it's just... Just the food. Yeah. 
So I know that you are a, a, a big fan of food as medicine, yeah. but you don't like the words alternative medicine. No. Do you? So what's what's <clears> wrong with having alternative medicine? I don't think it's got a place, really. I think there's just different shades of the same thing. You know, if I go outside here after this and get hit by a bus, the last thing I want to see is broccoli. Okay, but <laughs> on the, you know, so emergency things, things like emergency medicine <laughs> and stuff, it's miracle work. It's incredible. It's wonderful. But then when you look at the a lot of the chronic issues, the de- degenerative issues, mm. the things that are really plaguing the NHS, I feel the NHS and conventional medicine is losing the battle. So all mm. that highlights is there's different shades of the same thing. There's some things that we need to actively engage in. So, you know, it's up to us how we look after ourselves. And with mm. the big three, cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes and obesity, I mean, the, the three are very intricately linked anyway. Those really are lifestyle conditions. Mm. And medicine just isn't winning the war. But then in certain situations where we need drugs to keep us alive, then absolutely yes. we need the drugs. There yeah, isn't a question. Course. But if, if the, those two worlds can actually sit together well, which they're starting to, mm-hmm. you know, they're starting to drastically. When I was doing my, my postgrad, Virtually every other student on the course was a GP. How interesting! Yeah, so the you know Gosh, the light's been fantastic. the light's been switched yeah, on. Yeah. Uh, that, that's all. That's all I mean by that. It's it's not of any value to anyone to see it as like a, a this or that them and us kind of approach. Mm. It just doesn't work for anyone. So, do you think we should make the distinction then between lifestyle conditions, coronary yes. heart disease, type two diabetes, yes. obesity, yeah. and an acute medicine completely, and, exactly. and take responsibility then presumably for the former? Yeah. Definitely. And, and also an important thing to say here is that I don't, I'm not finger wagging. Like mm. Saying it's a lifestyle condition isn't saying that people are doing the wrong thing. Very often I see people wanting to make yeah. changes, wanting to do the right thing, mm. but they're just completely and utterly confused because the mm. level of education around nutrition and self-care doesn't really exist. And I think personally, a lot of that comes from lobbying and spin and industry. A lot of the certainly early food education in yeah. schools was being funded by food industry giants who have a vested interest yeah. in it and their own agenda to, to promote. Yeah. Where do you stand on the, the the fat is good debate? I mean, I know over the years we've um, very much been told you know it's got to be low fat or no fat, and, and fat is the big baddie. And that does seem to be turned around now and yeah. the spotlight's being put on sugar and refined carbs. And, and The nutrition world likes a baddie, don't they? Well, but, so what's, <laughs> what's your take on all that? Well, yeah, the, the, the landscape is changing when it comes to fats. Fats are absolutely essential. I mean, I don't know if you've ever, ever walked around Beverly Hills and you've seen some of those people that have been on a low-fat diet for about 50 years. It's not pretty, no. right? It's absolutely essential. So to give you an example, most of the steroidal hormones are made from you know, cholesterol and fat derivatives. You don't want those to be dropping because they're things like estrogen and testosterone. You don't Mm. want those to get too low. Every single cell in your body is made from fat. You know, your eyes and your nervous system rely on fats to function properly. So if you cut fat down too far, you're going to run into a few problems. So it's about having the right kind of fat. But this is where, yeah, this is where the landscape's changing. Mm. Is like what kinds of fats are causing problems and which ones aren't. One of the big ones at the minute is saturated fat. People are talking about saturated fat. I don't think we should be consuming it with absolute abandon, Mm. but I don't think it's quite as bad as we first thought it was. It depends where the saturated fat actually comes from. Yes. One of the big problems is that a lot of saturated fats that people are starting to fill up on now, you know, things like butter. Butter's all right in small amounts, Mm. but huge amounts of it. 
there's something in there called arachidonic acid. All animal-derived saturated fats are very rich in arachidonic acid. And I'll come on to that in a second because I, I kind of go a little bit into the rabbit hole with this. So that can be a problem. I think the biggest one that we face, though, is the types of unsaturated fats that we're consuming. Now, back in, it was around about the late 50s and into the 60s and 70s, there was a huge amount of public health campaigning around reducing saturated fat. That was in the US and the UK. They both kind of took on these messages at the same time. We were encouraged to ditch the saturated fat and instead move over to these quote-unquote heart-healthy vegetable oils. Like sunflower oil. Like sunflower oil and soy oil and all those kind of things. And if you look at the data, and this is like World Health Organization data as well, you can plot it on a graph, you'll see as consumption of those kind of oils went up, so the cardiovascular disease. Because what they're very rich in is something called omega-6. Now, you've heard of omega-3 and omega-6, the essential fatty acids, Mm. both absolutely essential to our health, but the amount that we need is the important factor yeah. and now, the ratio isn't the it? ratio exactly now omega-6 we only need it in a very small amount and we do need it in a small amount it's vital for certain neurological functions certain hormonal functions so we do need to take it in but only in a small amount when we take in more than we need mm. it gets shuttled down a different metabolic pathway and it gets turned into something called arachidonic acid that i mentioned earlier with the essential fatty acids, there's several things, several roles that they play in the body. Sometimes they have a structural role, but often they're involved in communication. And one of the big things that they actually produce is a, a group of compounds called prostaglandins that regulate the inflammatory response. Three main types of prostaglandins, series one, series two, series three. Series one and series three are anti-inflammatory, series three being aggressively so. Series two actually switches on inflammation and exacerbates it. Different fatty acids are metabolized to form different prostaglandins, okay? So the arachidonic acid that I spoke about before, that actually gets turned into the series 2 prostaglandins. That makes inflammation worse. So that's one part of the picture. Then the other part is the omega-3. The omega-3, particularly EPA and DHA, get turned into the anti-inflammatory series 1 and series 3 prostaglandins. And they're mostly the fish oils. We know them mostly from the fish fish world. Yeah, exactly. So we, we were in this situation where we were consuming up to 23 times more omega-6 fatty acids per day than we actually need 26 times more and And that was a public health policy yes yes exactly so we're getting more inflammation and we're feeding into that inflammatory pathway and And we know things cancer for example which is inflammatory absolutely cardiovascular disease we know it's inherently an inflammatory condition it's inflammatory damage to the endothelium and as you said with things like cancers prolonged inflammatory changes in tissues can activate certain genes and you will find that in any a-level pathology book that's not just like some wild idea that's a very widely so how did this become so widespread and so mainstream then that we needed to be eating more polyunsaturated fat a lot of it was due to ansel keys the work of ansel keys now he was an american physiologist that had an interest in nutrition and he had this theory that saturated fat was linked with cardiovascular disease and he set about to prove it and he developed what was originally the 23 country study the 22 country study sorry and that was later published as the seven country study and what that was was literally studying the dietary patterns of 22 countries and comparing that to incidence of cardiovascular disease over a certain period of time but which countries were he studying because when i've been to places like greece and italy they're eating monounsaturates yeah. Yeah. from olive oil yeah. and omega-3s from yeah. fish yeah. so where was he i mean it's i don't know every every single country but it was quite it was quite a, a mishmash yeah. With the original data set, and the original data set has been studied since and processed since, there would have been no 
relationship between saturated fat intake and cardiovascular disease whatsoever. But there was a lot of American industry funded his study and the US government funded his study as well. So there was maybe a lot of incentive to achieve a certain result. So what was published, Mm. it was publication bias. What was published was a data set that actually gave him the result that proved his hypothesis. Now, And as a result, we've all been living under the illusion that polyunsaturated fats in big quantities are good for us. Exactly, exactly. But then, strangely, later on in his life, he he moved to Piopi in Italy and he spent decades actually trying to undo the stuff that he'd done, but he couldn't get Mm. a single paper published when he was actually opposing his original things. Because you think about the amount of industry that's been built around that messaging. I mean, look at all the artificial, the fake margarines and Mm. slimming foods and low-fat yogurts. And I mean, you just name it, it goes on and on. And then I guess the other side of that coin dietary coin is the rise of sugar because Mm. if fat was demonized we needed something in our foods to make things palatable yes so it's not just sugar it's it's refined carbohydrates as well what are you defining as refined carbs then white bread white rice white pasta those kinds of things that don't have the fiber content because they don't have the fiber content they they take much less time to digest and they liberate their sugars more easily and it's the the rate and the extent to which a food liberates its sugar rather than the amount that's in there that's the issue okay the reason that's the issue is like here we go another rabbit hole so the, <laughs> um, <laughs> if you suddenly flood your bloodstream with sugar the first thing that's going to happen is your pancreas secretes insulin insulin binds to the insulin receptor on our cell it basically tells the cells that there's more sugar available the cell opens up a little gateway in its, in its wall, allows the sugar to come in. It can use it to make energy. All good. Now, mm-hmm. if that happens now and again, if your diet's generally good and you have a little bit of sugar and you get that blood sugar spike, mm-hmm. your body can deal with that. The blood sugar will come back down within a normal range. Everyone's happy. Now, if you're following the typical diet of you know, loads of bread and white rice and pasta and all this kind of stuff, you'll be constantly pushing blood sugar up into quite high ranges. And several things start to happen then. The insulin secreted, the, those transporters on the cell wall opens, but cells can only take in so much sugar in one sitting. They've got a cutoff point. If there's too much sugar in there in one go, there can be a lot of oxidative damage. So the cell gets full and it shuts the door. So then what happens to all the extra sugar? If the extra sugar's there, it still has to be dealt with because yeah. it has to be in very, very tight parameters really it gets sent to the liver gets sent to the liver and it's converted into something called triacylglycerol otherwise known as triglycerides which is a type of fat that can be then stored in the adipose tissue but it gets carried to the adipose tissue so you you see a lot of people that have got high blood sugar and consistently high insulin will have Mm. a tire around the waist that kind of characteristic tire that won't go no matter how long they spend on the treadmill yeah those triglycerides actually get transported to the adipose tissue via our circulatory system. Whilst they're in the circulatory system, they can oxidize and you get oxidative damage, which affects cardiovascular health. That's mm, one of the key cardiovascular risk factors. So you've, you've got this, this, this triple whammy of things going so on. So it's hard to Insulin comprehend resistance. really that, that, sorry to interrupt yeah, you, that, that, that sugar, refined sugar is being stored as fat. I think we can mm-hmm. all understand the idea that fat can get stored as fat, but the fact that yeah. sugar can get converted yeah. by the liver into yeah. this fatty adipose tissue carried around the body as yep. you say it oxidizes yep. becomes really damaging and destructive and leads to heart disease the thing is it's hardwired in our dna you think about how we lived through the greatest portions of our evolution we had times of feast and famine okay and in times of feast 
your body needs to be able to make sure that it's got mechanisms that can allow us to store that energy for later during times of famine. So that's exactly what happens when you you get that kind of increase in blood sugar beyond a point that the cells can actually deal with. It's just like, okay, we'll just store that for later then. Mm. You know, and just that normal physiology kicks in, but it's just that process is being abused by the kind of macronutrient composition of the modern diet. Mm. I was reading somewhere that, and I know you will give me the right answer on this, <laughs> uh, that not all calories are equal. Mm. I'm sure a lot of people listening, oh, yes. I'm glad you clapped your hands, uh, <laughs> that a lot of people listening will think, well, you know, I'm going to count calories. And I remember I grew up with a little pocket calorie counter. And, you know, I remember Crikey. in my early 20s counting calories and obsessively looking at foods. But not all calories are the same, are they? And calories from sugar seem to behave in a different way. I wouldn't even bother counting calories in the first. They, they, it's just meaningless. It's is completely it really? meaningless. Do you know how? It, I mean, do you know how a calorie is measured? Tell me. So a calorie is measured in a device called a bomb calorimeter. This is a highly pressurized container that contains water, and within that water, you've got like a little, almost like a little tin. It's like a little metal cabinet that contains a sample of the food in question. That food is ignited with electrical energy and it is burnt to an ash and all of the energy that is released during that combustion reaction raises the temperature of the water. The amount of the amount it raises the temperature determines how many calories are in there. Okay. That is so fascinating. Now, I did yeah. not know that's how you got the calorific value. Yeah, of exactly. Food. It's it's the amount of, of energy it takes to to raise one kilogram of water by one degree Celsius. That's the amount of that's one calorie. Now that already poses some questions to me, because as you know, when you eat food, ash doesn't come out the other end. No, we tend not you know, to set fire. You don't, you don't get a com- well. I've had a few curries that okay. got close, but <laughs> generally, there's not a combustion reaction in the digestive tract. So the energy that's being yielded during that combustion process does that have any bearing on the actual energy that food will deliver to the body? Unlikely, because there's still some bonds that remain intact. Okay, so, so first it's it. So- no, so no point random, count, counting yeah, calories. That's a random number. The second thing is, as you say, not all calories are created equal. Let's use the example of 500 calories of chocolate, mm-hmm. 500 calories of broccoli. Okay. Now, if we're talking just energy values, if we're just talking energy in versus energy out, we should be able to eat either of those yeah. and it not matter one iota to our health as mm-hmm. long as we stay within our caloric range. But you've got to be from another planet to think that those two foods will impact our physiology in the but same way. But will they way. impact weight in the same way? Because most of us who are calories massively different, massively different. It's got nothing to do with weight. it. Yeah, really? the whole calories in, calories out thing is, is flawed. So five hundred calories of, of chocolate. So five hundred calories of chocolate do different things for your exactly. weight gain than five hundred calories exactly. of broccoli. It's going to cause that hormonal cascade. Your blood sugar is going to rise rapidly. You're going to get the insulin spike. You're going to get that 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 kind of transformation of excess sugar into into triacylglycerol, etc., etc. Five hundred calories of broccoli is twenty one servings. Okay, twenty one servings. That's massively high in fibre. It's got a good protein content. It's going to take much longer to digest because it it's got that high fibre content. It's going to release its stored sugars sugars much more slowly, mm. which is going to drip feed your blood sugar instead of carpet bombing it. The impact on your physiology is drastically different. We've got to remember that weight management. It's not a bank account. It's not just like numerical values. That's great when you're talking about like a car or something like that. If a car is Wanting to do, if you wanted to do a certain distance in a certain car, you know that to do a certain distance, 
at a certain speed, you need, you need a certain amount of a certain fuel that's mm-hmm. got standardised value. It's all very kind of mechanical and standardised. But when you're talking about a biological system that metabolises processes, is controlled by hormones, all of that goes out the window. This, this is, you know, this is one of the big things that I've been talking about recently is people need mm. to get more educated about how we actually put on weight, why we put on weight, so- how it all works. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. So give us the secrets then. How do we stay slim if we're not counting calories? Or become slimmer if we've... Yeah, you know, it's, it's it. understanding our physiology. I mean, the, the, the program that I launched recently is built around this whole this whole philosophy is understanding how all of these mechanisms work. So understanding how different hormones influence the whole picture. So you've got hormones that regulate how we put on weight, how we actually store fat, insulin being the one. So when insulin is high, because you've got that that storage medium, those triglycerides that are on their way to the fat cells, the elevated insulin actually opens the doorway on the adipocytes, on the, on the fat cells, and allows those fatty acids to be stored in there. But when insulin is high, it's a one-way flow of traffic. I said it was hardwired into our DNA that mm. we that we store it like that. But then what happens normally in times of famine, our blood sugar levels drop, insulin drops, our glycogen stores start to go down, and those fats that are stored in those cells can come back out into circulation to be used as energy. When insulin is high, that doesn't happen. It's one-way flow of traffic. You just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So you so do need why. to sh- cut down the sugar habit. The sugar- that's part of it. But then also the way that you can put, you compose meals mm-hmm. can make a difference. But then you've got other hormones, things like ghrelin and leptin and all these other things that mm-hmm. regulate appetite. And it's it, it's quite complex. But once you understand how all of this works you suddenly get out of that diet trap. You get out of that rat race forever. Yeah. You really don't ever need to go there again. That's what I called the program Diet Another Day. <laughs> you know, it's a little diet bit of another Diet day, Another Day. It. Because, you know, because <laughs> it's, it's that whole thing. You don't need to be in that trap. Once you understand how this all works, mm. you can look at a plate of food and know whether it's going to do you good or not. Mm. So, as I was saying, the way that you actually compose meals. Mm. If you've got a carbohydrate source, put some protein with it, and that'll take twice as long to digest, and that will reduce its glycemic impact. Build your plate around non-starchy vegetables. All of these things you can do to tweak the way that you eat mm. that can make a difference. Do you have favourite foods, things that you try and eat most days? Ooh, favourite foods. It's like trying to choose a favourite child, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I mean, I, do, you, do you add things in? Do you, do you believe in using things like turmeric and herbs and spices i usually things just they taste good okay. regardless of like what mm. the nutritional profiles would be um i i am pretty obsessed with purple sweet potatoes at the minute we did a whole, whole thing in the yeah. magazine on purple foods because yeah. the compounds in purple colored foods are pretty special aren't they yeah they're, they're flavonoids generally when you see purple it will be anthocyanins sometimes with um things like beetroot you've got beta cyanin but Predominantly, it will be anthocyanins you find in red wine as well, for example. Um, aubergines are the only exception. That's a compound called nazionin that gives the purple colour, and that's got a completely different effect. Okay, so we don't but, necessarily want aubergines. But blueberries, but- red cabbage, red onions, they're all rich mm. in flavonoids. Mm-hmm. And flavonoids are incredible for cardiovascular health. Black grapes? Black grapes, yeah, all of those. Black cherries, blackberries. Yeah, yeah exactly. Grapes. They've all got the same compounds in them. And flavonoids 
protect our cardiovascular system in two distinct ways. The cells that make up the endothelium, which is the skin that lines the inside of our blood vessels, can take up flavonoids quite excessively. When those cells take up the flavonoids, the flavonoids trigger like a like a metabolic distress within the within the cell. They set off a, a distress signal and cause those cells to secrete very high levels of something called nitric oxide, which is something they secrete anyway. Mm. But this nitric oxide, when it leaves the cell, it goes into the smooth muscle, which is what most of our vessel wall is made from, and causes those muscle fibres to relax. As those fibres relax, the vessel dilates. Simple physics kicks in. Because the vessel gets bigger, the pressure within it drops. It transiently right. lowers our blood pressure. So that's the first thing that it can do. The second thing is that increased nitric oxide expression protects the endothelium from damage and it's damage to the endothelium be it from oxidized triglycerides or other kind of metabolic processes that sets the whole cascade of events that eventually lead to like an atheroma or a plaque within the blood vessel basically mm. cardiovascular disease yeah. you know you get an inflammatory area of inflammatory damage on the um, endothelium you start to lay down things like fibrin and these other proteinous fibers that are involved like a scab almost mm, okay. and they kind of reach out into the lumen of the vessel where then cholesterol that's kind of going around in our circulation gets caught up in this mesh gets driven into the vessel wall the immune system responds the whole cascade of events take so place. eating a portion of a purpley colored food every day could be just one simple take one simple message thing. that's that's one that of the key things your yeah. inner cell strength your arterial yeah. arterial walls yeah, to function yeah properly so a bit of red cabbage some exactly blackberries and blueberries that's the key thing with what grapes, i do it's whatever it, it's not like it's a completely prescriptive exhaustive thing it's like mm. if we understand more about what our food does and how mm. if we have certain issues if we have certain concerns we know what to build our diets around we know what kind of key compounds or food types that we should eat more of or less of i'd like to quiz you about cholesterol because it's yes. a word that you've mentioned a couple of times already Cholesterol is often painted as the the big bad guy mm. of the fat world, mm. but actually we make cholesterol, don't we ourselves, yes, and we need it to a certain amount. Yeah. What's what's your take on cholesterol? It's I, I I always use the analogy of it analogy of it being like the innocent bystander. You know, it's the inflammatory damage that I mean, cholesterol is involved in the pathological process of the development of cardiovascular disease. It's not necessarily a cause. It's involved, but it's not a cause. If you look at the the inflammatory damage that I spoke about before, that's the trigger. When you get that area of inflammatory damage and you start to lay down those fibres in an attempt to, to repair that area of damage, the cholesterol that's in the circulation, because of the sheer force of blood moving through the vessel, it's like a fishing net kind of so going it out trapped. it gets trapped and the force starts to drive it into the so it's into not the vessel the cholesterol wall. itself it's not the cholesterol that, it's itself the it's the inflammation it's okay. the inflammation that set the whole thing in process we need cholesterol mm. cholesterol is the key component for the production of steroidal hormones estrogen testosterone you don't want those dropping mm. also cholesterol is the precursor to vitamin d the main source of vitamin d for human beings and we're is, all told to have more yeah, vitamin d yeah these it's days. the conversion of cholesterol into vitamin d precursors when our skin is exposed to ultraviolet radiation so if cholesterol is too low vitamin d production is too low so it's an important thing so maybe we wouldn't be needing to supplement our diets with vitamin d which the government tell us to do if we were having well, a bit more cholesterol the, well the other part of that picture is the exposure to ultraviolet radiation now in this country we're kind of scuppered a little bit i mean Not you, so much the sunshine. sun is sunshine's like a rumor <laughs> in this country most of the time so there there is that but we need both we, we need, need both yeah absolutely and, so and vitamin d if you if you're concerned about cardiovascular disease i would say shift your focus more onto 
inflammation, really, because that's getting to the root cause. Mm. So what about statins that we hear so much about? What about statins? Yeah, there's, there's, there's quite a few known side effects. I mean, one of the things that it does so what, block what, So what is, is a statin start with for anybody? It's something that, that blocks the actual synthesis of cholesterol to a point. So would you think so that's works, a good thing? Works or, or in the liver. No, I think it's a bad thing. Because cholesterol isn't the bad guy anyway. It isn't the bad guy anyway. And there are some really terrible side effects with statins. I mean, my mum was a perfect example. She was taking quite high dose ones and she couldn't even climb the stairs. Because one of the things that it does block is our um, production or the carrying of coenzyme Q10. Coenzyme Q10 is involved in energy production within our cells. Uh, when glucose comes into a cell, it goes through two processes. It goes through the Krebs cycle and then the electron transport chain. And the, out, the final product is something called ATP, which is what the cells run on. Coenzyme Q10 is a vital part of the electron transport chain, the second part of that process. You knock Q10 out, you're going to be knackered because you've not got enough ATP production to mm. actually fuel the most basic things. She couldn't climb the stairs. Gosh. Then a, a doctor adjusted the dose and bomb, she was fine. Yeah. So, but even so, it's still, uh, to your view here, we should be combating the process of inflammation. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And not wiping out the cholesterol. Yeah. Because you'll still have the, even if you wipe out cholesterol, you'll still potentially have that process of inflammation exactly, going on. So exactly. you haven't sorted out the problem, yeah. have you? Exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm not completely against cardiovascular drugs either. Mm. Say, for example, someone's got um, genetic issues that is causing their blood pressure to be consistently high. That's a massive risk. And if mm. you need drugs to get the blood sure. pressure down... You need them. There's, mm. you know, there's no discussion there. And obviously things that influence, you know, heart rhythm as well. Yeah. Something like beta blockers or whatever. Mm. That's a completely different ball game, And that's, that's absolutely valid. So I'm not, I'm not anti-medication right across the board. Mm. It's like, look, if there's a lot that we can do for ourselves first mm-hmm. without causing all these other problems, maybe let's focus there a little mm. bit. I mean, it's going to save, it's going to save the NHS some money sure. and it's going to probably save a lot of lives as well. Mm, yeah. And better quality of life. Yeah. When I was away in Greece filming, one of the things that they were making a lot, um, up in the mountain communities where I was visiting was a hawthorn berry mm. tincture. Mm. And they were just going picking everyday hormo- uh, hawthorn, which I know we've got loads of hawthorn hedges on the farm. So this is something that I'm going to take home as my, yeah. my tip for, for going home. Mixing it with um, some high-strength alcohol, mm. steeping it for 45 days, the berries, straining the berries off, and then having these hawthorn tincture drops, yeah. basically, every day in water. And they were saying that it was seriously um, improving rates of heart disease. Mm. I mean, is there any truth in that? Because they're rich in flavonoids. That's how, that's how hawthorn, Crataegus levigata, that's how it works. And you'll find the, the flavonoids in the flowers and the berries. So you can do the same with the flowers? Yes, you can. Hawthorn yeah, and yeah the, the levels are slightly lower in the flowers. It's a little bit more gentle. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's why they work, because of the, that nitric oxide expression. The flavonoids are in there. It just delivers a good dose of the flavonoids into circulation. Fantastic. Yeah. So the things that I'm learning here is that we need to have many more of the purple foods mm-hmm. in our diet. We need to dramatically have a rethink on sugar. Mm-hmm. and our sugar spikes. Is that particularly true of children? I mean, how addictive is sugar? Because my children just seem to See, be... See, I don't know about They that. seem to yeah. run on sugar. Yeah. And sugar seems to be an everyday, let's have cake for tea. Whereas, you know, when I was growing <laughs> up, it, it yeah. was at the weekend. It yeah. was an occasional treat. It yeah. was something that was seen as special, not every day, mm. not every day Mars bars. I mean, for me, 
you know, garage forecourts are like the worst because they hit you at that moment when you're just feeling really yes, low. Yes, yeah. And you're just faced with this huge Don't see a fruit sugar. bowl or a bag of salad there, do you? Or some of us. Well, even if you like... did, you wouldn't kind of really, really fancy it. Although I have to say what oh, I found, was... would you? Yeah, oh, I'm such a nerd. I'd just be like, hummus, Mars bar, hummus. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, yeah no, every time. I, I have, yeah, I have to say, a good, good bowl of hummus does really do it. Especially, and you have to remember that there's a lot of natural sugar in root vegetables. So mm. things like carrots that you might be dipping into the hummus. Yeah. They're naturally sweet, aren't they, anyway? They are, but there's so much fibre in there. It's, it, it doesn't it's, matter. It's not, not going to cause any problems at all. Really? Yeah, the, fi- the fibre is the thing that slows down the digestion of that food, which slows down the liberation of the sugar, mm-hmm. which slows down the rate and extent to which it raises your blood sugar. So again, it's drip feeding the blood sugar rather than carpet bombing it. As long as you're drip feeding it, mm. your body can cope. The cells can just take it in at a nice steady rate. Right. Make ATP, it's all good. It's all fine. So that low that low glycemic diet is a really, really important Low one. GI. Yeah. And what's the difference between glycemic index, GI, mm-hmm. and glycemic load, GL? Because people talk about both, don't yeah, they? Yeah, so the glycemic index is the rate and extent to which the carbohydrate in that food will um, raise your blood sugar. The glycemic load is that plus the amount of the actual carbohydrate that's in there so something could have a really really high gi carbohydrate in it but if it's only got a tiny amount of it compared to everything else right. then it's a low gl food so it's glycemic load that we should be looking at yeah. really yeah. that's that's the most having the most impact yeah. and one thing which i hope you will tell me has a low <laughs> gl um is very dark chocolate because i i probably i have a healthy addiction i have to confess a healthy addiction we well, you know what chocolate. At the end of the day, it depends what the rest of the diet looks like. And I'm, I, I have a sneaky suspicion <laughs> the rest of your diet might actually be pretty good. It's, yeah? it's, it's not bad. Yeah? It's not so, bad. So it doesn't matter. The one thing that you really can't do is be puritanical about it because life yeah. becomes miserable. Yeah, you know, you have to allow yourself a little bit of decadence. Otherwise, things start to get pretty glum. It, you know, if, if the rest of your diet is trash, then, you know, there's there's work on patterns that you need to do and it's the patterns that matter yes. if you've got a good diet a little bit of chocolate or a glass of wine or whatever go for it doesn't yeah, it no, I'm, no I'm definitely having come back from these greek islands where they seem to be fueled by their homemade red wine yeah um, and living long and well on it so I'm, I'm definitely going to take the view that that's a purple food that we should be having a bit more of yes absolutely <laughs> oh, i'm a fan as well <laughs> dale it's such a treat to have you here i feel that we've literally just touched the tip of the dietary iceberg so i'd love you to come back service. i'd love to come back and thank you very much indeed as always we will be posting the podcast notes on lizellwellbeing.com which will be free for all to download so lots of information and we'll put all the links to all dale's magnificent books and programs and websites and all the rest you just need to sign up to my newsletter to gain access to these and a whole lot more interesting website content too and don't forget you can follow my magazine team and me on facebook we are lizard wellbeing magazine and also on instagram and twitter where you will find me personally as liz l me so until the next time go very well watch your glycemic load bye bye Thank you.